Are you passionate about making a difference through design? Join us at the Human Centered Design Network's Circle, a new private community for change makers just like you. Connect with like minded professionals, gain exclusive rights to monthly learning opportunities, and lead the change in human centered design. For more information, see thisishcd.com. Now, let's get back into that episode. Hello and welcome to another episode of This Is HCD. My name is Jerry Scullion and I'm a service design principal based in Dublin City, Ireland. I recently caught up with our next guest, Sarah Drummond. Sarah is a designer and CEO and serial idea generator. She's co-founded Snook, My Police, Cycle Hack and Dear Scotland, Aloha Pride and The Matter. For this work, she was awarded a Google Fellowship for her work in technology and democratic innovation and named as Good Magazine's 100 Extraordinary Individuals Tackling Global Issues in a Creative Way. Daily, Sarah is a CEO of Snook, an award-winning global design consultancy based in London and Glasgow. Snook are on a mission to design a new public realm that works better for people, and this is a perfect segue into what we discussed. We caught up recently in Dublin to talk about kick-starting a design revolution and what that actually means how we can get designed to the social consciousness. Looking at countries like Finland, Estonia, Germany, and more recently, Scotland, we chat about things Sarah instigated in the Scottish design community over a decade ago, and how that manifested itself into Nicola Sturgeon, the First Minister of Scotland, uttering the words about prototyping, testing, and validating. Let's jump straight into the call, and let's hear how Sarah thinks we should start a design revolution. Sarah Drummond, a very warm welcome to the This Is HCD podcast. Hello. Hello from Dublin. Uh, myself and Sarah, we're, we're sitting in a hotel in Dublin, we're, we're catching up, so if you do some, hear some clinky-clanky in the background, um, we're not in a pub, we're in a hotel, but we will be in a pub later on probably. <laughs> <laughs> Sarah, um, welcome to Dublin. I know you, you're back and forth here quite a bit with Snook, but tell us a little bit about yourself, your, your experience and uh, how you got involved in design. Sure, so I'm the current director and a co-founder of Snook. We're a design agency based in London and in Glasgow and Scotland and doing quite a bit of work here in Ireland, which is exciting. I was a product designer, so doing what I do now is kind of quite far away from what I thought I'd be doing. I studied at the Glasgow School of Art, made coat hangers, lampshades, bike stands, (laughs) made stuff um, with my hands, but learned how to think through making. And then accidentally I ended up going and working with a company called Skills Development Scotland a non-departmental public body so they take policy from the government and turn it into the services we use within a kind of career and skill building part of the sector did a project with them as a student looking at digital young people's lever journeys from school and they got really interested in design and then when I left I ended up working for them while doing a master's and fell into designing services with government. Absolutely. And I, I know you mentioned earlier about My Police mm. in Scotland, something that I read years ago about, but I actually didn't put the connection back to you at that time. Um, so there's a, an interesting story about My Police. Maybe you could tell us a little bit more about that. Sure, yeah. So um, My Police was a, a platform that helps the police talk to the public and the public talk to the police. Kind of a new way of thinking about closing feedback loops between like public sector institutions and citizens won some money um, the day after I left university through a competition called Social Innovation Camp. Um, You go along, you build your idea with a bunch of kind of tech heads and business thinkers. Won it by accident, uh, got invested in by Channel 4. uh, Nice accident. Well, a good accident, a skillful accident. 
asked someone called Lauren Curry to join the team as well. And together we founded My Police, which went on to become, I think, the first... Snook project. Snook project, yeah. And the first platform for the police to talk to the public online digitally. Wow. So that's a really interesting segue, like the My Police, into what we're going to talk today about. Like, obviously, I've returned to Ireland from living in Australia for quite a while. And what I've seen in, in Scotland over the last decade is, like, you've actually built, not single-handedly, I'm sure, but, like, you've had a big role to play in enabling a design revolution to almost happen in Scotland. What I'm really interested to hear about is the the parallels and things that we could probably do in Ireland or in other countries or even in organisations and what worked tactically and strategically to help evolve and enable that that design revolution to occur. So where do we start? Like, Where do we go with something like that? It's a big statement, a design revolution. Well, it is a design revolution in Scotland. I mean, so take Nicola Sturgeon's programme for government last year, 2017, from yeah. the Scottish National Party. It talks about prototyping and testing services with users in the national programme for government. It's absolutely incredible. It's amazing. I mean, and that's backed by a lot of hard work from people who are currently inside government and in the wider ecosystem. So your agencies, your education bodies working there, who've been tirelessly working for, you know, the last 10, 20 years on bringing, I wouldn't just say design, like user-centred approaches to government and our democracy. So there's so many things that have happened. I mean, there's critical things I could pick out. So, so how did Nicola Sturgeon get to be able to, to, one, know what a prototype is, and two, about testing prototypes? Uh, ten years ago, I doubt she would have been saying those words. I don't think so. I mean, no one was saying those words. Yeah. When we started Snook, so 2009, which is nearly ten years ago, Lauren and I ran the first ever uh, service design drinks up there. And seven people showed up. Right. It's really small... Uh, not a lot of interest, but a real core group of people who were trialling out projects in the NHS, people like Peter Ash, Andy Hyde, um, with a project called Alice, yeah. looking at uh, long-term conditions, working with people, citizens, to design what their journey of managing a long-term condition should look like. Mm-hmm. So very design-led. Um, people like uh, Lucy Robinson, working for Iris, uh, research into social services, running design projects of care leavers. Yeah. So really, really early stage, quite naive projects at the beginning. But I saw and they were funded by government, were they those projects? Uh, funded by government or within a foundation that they sat with. Yeah. Um, the Glasgow School of Art uh, starting to do work in that space. So there's a really early little network of people yeah. working the, the together. The kindlings of, of a community we're yeah, building. sparking up. And then you've got what's interesting about Scotland, actually, and I think is a big part, because this isn't a, a design story to tell. I think it's a story about policy. I think it's a story about national identity and, what, and how we want to treat each other. And so mm. there's things like the Christie Commission that came out by Campbell Christie in 2011, which was about what's the co- that? Well, it's about the co-production of services. So mm. it was a kind of commission done working with local authorities, public sector bodies, interviews with key figures and going, how do we make stuff work for people in Scotland? How will we actually do that? And uh, a paper came out of it with quite a big following. You know, a lot of people would probably still mention it today, even though it's about seven, eight years old talking fundamentally about co-production, about building and prototyping Mm. services with users. So was that paper the equivalent of Francis Maud? doing what he did in, you know, British Parliament in 2011, was it, or 2010, maybe? You could draw parallels, but I'd probably actually say no. I mean, I think what Francis Moore and Government Digital Service did was actually quite different. So they had a really clear mandate 
25 services. Yeah. We're going to transform them. Huge investment as well. I mean, yeah. there was financial backing for that. So they had the ability to bring in some really smart people to government and people already within government to, to work to on champion some, it. Yeah, just, you know, digital transformation projects. I think the Christie Commission didn't quite lead to anything like GDS's scale. So it's been a much longer term journey, I think, for Scotland. Um, and we're going to do it in our own way. So whilst we'll learn lessons from what GDS have done, we're not necessarily focusing on just digital transformation. We're yeah. really thinking about the policy of what we do and mm. um, bringing the whole of the public sector with us, not just the government. Pockets. yeah. And not a kind of centralised necessarily um, function of digital transformation like GDS. So I, the paper is not quite similar. I think... What's different in Scotland is there is a sentiment about how we do stuff with the people that live there and making yeah. sure that services are inclusively designed with that group. That's a mindset shift and that's a huge cultural shift for people working for society. in the public sector. Yeah. Uh, everything for the people of Scotland. Yeah, completely. So just looking at the parallels with Ireland and where it's currently at, like it's a little bit further behind, I guess, is, is probably the political way of saying it, um, and where Scotland is. Where do you see Ireland is as regards the maturity to, to Scotland in terms of a design maturity now? It's interesting. So we're doing quite a lot of work here. Mm. When I say a lot, we've got about four or five projects that some yeah. are finished, some are ongoing. Um, so with people in places like Cork County Council. And what I've found actually is there seems to be a growing hunger for service design. So there's a, there's a maturity in the ask of can we use service design? I think what's maybe not quite mature at this stage is the understanding of what that actually means yeah. and our literacy in, in, in the fact that, for me anyway, my opinion is that service design is a collective verb. It's something that we all do together. It's not something you can bolt on as a capability. Yeah. It's not a service you just buy and then just disregard. And, and be like, yeah, we, we just did service design. I mean, yeah, we've done it now. Yeah. Woo! It's going into UAT. Yeah, done. Look, our yeah. impact, let's do the next thing that comes along. So I think there needs to be some more literacy and maturity in thinking about service design as an ongoing capability um, at a government-wide level um, and then also at an organisational level within, I think, both the public and corporate sector. So when you're selling service design into those organisations, are you also selling the capability of educating so to make sure that it can live on beyond whatever you do design? You have to. I mean, you can't rely on agencies or contractors to come and do the service design bit for you. I mean, as we were just saying, like service design is an internal capability and it's more of a, it's a wider perspective on being a user-centered culture, yeah. you know? So my job is to help organizations build design capability and build a focus and a strategy to become as user-centered as they possibly can. Yeah, which is a really interesting model because it's, it's not like the typical consultancy or agency model where you know, they came in with an RFP and you come back with a response and you're like, we're going to deliver all of it for this amount of money. You're almost becoming like strategic partners. Yeah, you're I You're sitting so. within the organisation. Uh, people laugh and say it's a bit of a backwards business model, like you're doing yourself out of a job. But I really fundamentally disagree with that. I mean, eventually you are. That's the point. Like we're, my mission and Snook's mission is to design a world that works better for everyone everywhere. And in order to do that, we need to ensure that everyone has a role to play in designing, making conscious design decisions. So we have to build that capability. And I think, I think it's just important to, to deliver that for people so that on an ongoing basis, when you've worked on one or two or three trainer projects with them, so you've done the expertise of doing design, they've learned with you, and then you move into more of a strategic space. So you do, you become a critical friend, 
to organisations to help them think about, okay, we've got a little bit of design literacy now, what's the next level up? Absolutely. And how do we bring that talent in? And, and part of that, you know, going back to where the question about, you know, where's Ireland at? It's about building that that network of designers that are actually available here to go in and work with those organisations. Because if we don't have the, you know, experienced and mature talent here, then we can't do this. Yeah. So big so part is bringing people back. The service design network, I suppose, is has got a role to play in that. Yeah. You did mention something that was really interesting about uh, building the critical mass, and um, you know, people asking for service design in organisations. What I'm seeing is like there's people that don't even know what service design is. I'm sure that happened in Scotland as well. So what things did you do to bring service design into the social consciousness in Scotland? Tell stories. I think um, find and steal case studies from other people. I mean, at, you know, at the start of Snook again, we had no case studies. Yeah. We just had a hunch um, and we'd, we'd been studying, you know, product design and we recognised the benefits of bringing that into a service context for organisations. So I think telling stories is really important. Um driving the compassion of people to want to change something. So, you know, often I'll spend time with senior leaders and we might talk about service design, we might talk about digital transformation, we might talk about efficiency, you know, process design. But what I'll do, the one thing I'll do is I'll try and shoot a video or map a visual journey map of someone failing to use a service that their organization runs. And they'll go, oh, we need to change that. And I think that's where the conversation starts about service design because it has to have a mission and a purpose for why you would use that, you know, that As opposed to what they're currently doing. Yeah, exactly. So it's got to come back to the the context of what you need to redesign. Yeah. So those stories are really, really important and um, they're important for businesses as well, but they're also important for, you know, the future of design. And uh, I'm keen to understand what role you feel the educational system has to play in designing for the future. I guess if we're trying to bring design into the social consciousness of the Irish people or you know, anywhere else in the world, what roles do colleges and schools and even kindergartens have to play in enabling design to become something that can be spoken about at home? It's, I think, education system has a massive uh, role to play. I mean, so the big thing we were talking about earlier is if you want to have a country that, you know, believes in design and uses design, it needs people to design that that live here and, and want to live here. I'm always a bit disappointed, actually, in the UK's perspective on this because we've uh, essentially, with our current government, removed uh, a lot of those, you know, CDT, craft design technology-based topics, graphic design, right. in order to focus more on uh, science, some of the English languages, sciences. And I think, you know, we need to take a perspective on the fact that design is the link between maths and science and the stuff that we use in the real world. Absolutely. You know, STEM. Yeah, it, it puts, puts a, a casing around technology. So we have to get it into the education system. And I think one of the reasons, and I've seen this from doing research into uh, the learner journey in Scotland, about how young people make career decisions. One of the core reasons is that the teachers and the careers advisors don't actually understand where and how design can be useful. So it comes back to the story piece again, is we need to show you know, show some case studies from us or from government digital service or, you know, they have, in GDS, they have 950 designers embedded in government. And I often have parents come to me and ask me, you know, geez, my kid wants to get into design and I'm just like, I don't... I, you know, I don't know what it is. They're going to be an art teacher. And I'm like, you really need to look a little bit wider, actually, that design is one of the most prized uh, skill sets at the moment 
that we're lacking experienced people in. So we have to get into the education system and really young and start bringing design back in as a topic to teach people about, you know, young kids about problem solving, yeah. about making stuff with their hands again. We know making stuff with your hands has a great cognitive effect on your mental health. So not dissing or moving away, because I studied maths, I studied sciences, you know, I'm a I'm interested in them, but I think design has to stop being seen as, you know, the topic for the kids that, you know, can't do the yeah. clever stuff. They've, we've really got to see it as a absolute core skill set to, you know, the future generation. Absolutely. Like, I remember years ago, and must have been probably 93, 94, I don't know, I'm a good bit older than you, but I'm giving away my age here. <laughs> and I remember um, saying to one of my neighbours down the road that I, was, I wanted to become a designer. At that stage, I was, I was learning about industrial design and his interpretation of design was graphic design. He was like, sure, like, there's computer programs out there. They can, uh, they're going to be able to take over the job. You're not going to get a job. And if they only knew now, like, how, like, you know, popular design has become, especially in Australia, like, where you know, the market is booming mm. for designers over there. It's, uh, it's, it was a really good career decision for me to make anyway. And I can, I'd love to go back in time and make sure more of my friends had the courage to really choose design as a career because I know a lot of them now are, are in careers where they're like oh god I'd love to be doing something a little bit more out there I suppose than sitting in an office cubicle for sure and I think again story piece it comes back to what is the public understanding of design most of it is capital D it's chairs yeah. it's form based things and we don't have a literacy in you know what design is and what design thinking is actually really about so I think if we you know if we look back in history in the context of where design has been you know very visceral in our media it's things like I'm not sure if in, in the Irish context we'll know this but things like changing rooms right yeah. we used to have Lawrence Llewellyn Bowen and Carol Smiley no, going no, don't be dissing him right <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm not dissing him he did a great flamboyant job of turning some absolutely. pretty alright blocks into horrendous uh, <laughs> carpet you know luminous green carpet and things like this what's the blue Peter sort of toilet roll holder kind yeah. of design creative this kind of you know hodgepodge this kind of vision and, and we don't really you know there's other countries around the world um, where design is absolutely embedded into the culture like uh, Holland we were talking about Scandinavia earlier you know design is a it's a language that they use and a literacy we don't necessarily always have a pride in that within our own countries I've seen that in a UK context so I think it's more stories about what design is actually about, where it's used and applied, and we need to get that into our media. Yeah, so look, just as a great segue again, like into other countries. You're welcome. <laughs> it's almost as if we've got a script. We don't actually have a script. We've got a <laughs> list of questions, but they, they can go and they can they can leave at any time. What countries are, are you know? We mentioned Finland earlier. Like we always come back to Finland on this podcast. I know one of my friends, Peter Lofgren, who's uh, the head of design in Westpac in Australia. He loves talking about Finland, and I've learned so much about Finland, especially through his kids. Like he's got beautiful children, and um, they all know what design is. And it always struck me, like the children are seven years old, they know that that Jerry's a designer and Daddy's a designer. And I don't think it's a coincidence. I think it's in the consciousness of the people like in Finland and even in the consciousness of the people in Germany. It's championed from the parents at a very young age that design is something that's important. So do you have anything to add to that about what Scotland or like what role they've done to improve that kind of perception of design? I think Scotland has some parallels with Finland in a way. Yeah. So I'm not necessarily saying that we... It's we've... both cold. Yeah, well, it's <laughs> freezing. Uh, I don't think Finland's as wet and we're a little less shy than some of the Finnish people I know. But, um, yeah, better football as well. Yeah, you take Finland for it as an example and I think there's a good reason to come back to that. So it's Finland's like... I'd call it their like cognitive operating system, right? Okay. Like the way that they... 
the, the country, their values and principles are set up. So like take uh, movements in the 70s we were talking about of the kind of Scandinavian cooperative design. So people like um, Christian Nyagard in the 70s stimulating projects with like the Metal Workers Union, redesigning um, how interfaces would work. So at the advent of digital being, being applied, we thought okay, we've got to think about how this is used by people. So we worked with nurses and we worked with doctors and we worked with designers trying to redesign what those systems look like by working with people. So it's always been in their conscious or kind of operating system to do so. And they've gone on to do things like, you know, they've just done the basic income trial. So they're testing stuff. So it's just in their consciousness. And I think yeah. it's within their policies. They've always been in that experimentation, yeah. kind of social experimentation phase. Yeah, and believing in kind of like a... I guess, a kind of equality in their society. And I think in some sense, Scotland has that too, coming back to the Christie Commission and our love of co-production, which, which came from Edgar Cann in the States, we really took hold of it in Scotland. It's in a bit of an operating system of how we cognitively think as people and our policies. So I think if you've got that, you've already got an amazing platform to design on top of. I think when you, if you don't have that, you're all, if you're trying to embed design in at a really kind of countrywide level within that system... If you don't have the operating platform, it's quite difficult to bring it in because you need those principles to be your, your kind of a bit of a saviour, really, your kind of backing for it. Yeah, no, absolutely. Just going to, you know, there's a lot of parallels between Scotland and Ireland. We've identified that. It's both raining. Uh, we both have great music communities. Um, but one thing that we do have in common, I think, is you know, we look after our money. And businesses, whenever they're buying design, it can sometimes be perceived that you know, we don't have enough money for design. It's, it's going to stop us delivering the thing that we want to deliver. So did you encounter that in Scotland as regards selling in service design into organisations where they thought maybe like, they could just do it themselves? Absolutely. I mean, service design, if you're having to explain what it is, it's not going to be already in a budget line of what an organisation needs to do. So we had to do a huge amount of upselling. And I think one of the main reasons for people finally investing in it was that we managed to create a convincing case around how it would de-risk innovation how it could save money by not you know messing up a service and designing it without people so i think in some sense there's a there is a financial and economic case to be made that's that's relatively easy to make i mean working with the team down in cork you know we got them a cost saving within six weeks not a huge one but you know a cost saving and they've got 600 services so you multiply that by 600 it's actually it's quite a lot so really really basic maths can be used but i think organizations need to see past service design as capital s capital d service design and see as i've said before like you know service design is a verb it's a collective thing that we all do together and some really basic principles that don't you know to enact them don't, doesn't really cost anything to do. Yeah. It's get over your your fear of going and talking to some users, watch them or find out how they use something, find out where it's broken and test how you'll fix that. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty simple stuff. I know, absolutely. I, I know Mark Stickdorn, like I've mentioned this numerous times in the podcast, but in his episode, he says that he's like, let's not work, focus on the words service design or customer experience or user experience. Let's just focus on the behaviors of being able to create something. And it's so true. Like if you're trying to sell something in and it's, it's an extra thing that they have to buy, they look at it as, as an extra cost. Whereas if you're not, you're selling in a mindset, you're almost selling in an internal capability. It changes the conversation somewhat. Yeah, absolutely. I think though there's something I would caveat most of that with because you know, most of my message around what we do at Snook is about building that design capability and capacity that everyone is a designer. 
So everyone's a designer because every micro decision that we make on the insides of like, you know, an institutional's boundaries has an impact on the end user experience. Like we're all responsible for the user experience from HR department to finance to digital teams. But we can't replace hiring great designers too. And delivering these experiences takes a full stack of designers. So it takes user interaction designers to think about the detail of what someone's actually doing, content designers, the language telling you what to do to move to the next stage of that design. And you get good service designers as well, people who are very good at seeing the big picture and the small picture. But they, you know, they can come from other disciplines too. They don't yeah. have to be trained in design. But I, I wouldn't negate and ignore the fact that you do need an investment if you're serious about it to bring that in-house. To bring all those capabilities in. Yeah, but you don't need them right from the outset to make change happen and to practice service design. But it's been locked into the vision. Like, this is where you're going to have to get to. You're going to have to make that investment at some point. Absolutely. And your investment needs to look at the, you know, the wider aspiration and mission to become a user-centered culture. So mm. it's not only about, you know, doing the doing of service design, like, you know, your user research and prototyping to make that service better. It's also investing in building the products that will help you sustain and build and grow a user-centered culture. So it might be things like pattern libraries, training materials, you know, train the trainer stuff with other yeah. parts of the organization. You know, it could be um, user research libraries, so the products that help scale good design. You know, they take investment. Yeah. But again, caveat that back with you shouldn't be scared of that investment. Yeah. You can do some quite small stuff at the start. So just say, um, like in Scotland, like you, you built the, the community, you understand who's who, and you got to a point where you're, you're going to start you know, doing training, the training kind of courses in Scotland and Glasgow and stuff, and maybe putting on big conferences and stuff. And people may want to go to those conferences, but they're competing with other stuff that's on around that same time. You know, service design may as well be called apples and pears. They don't know what it is, so they don't know if it's something that they should actually be interested in. I think you need to avoid this idea of having the big conference. Mm. You know, if you're at the start of a journey, you need to start small and you need to start growing a movement around this with lots of, you know, it's about building and, and growing a network. Yeah. So, you know, I'm not using Snook as the marker of like there was no service design and then there was lots. Absolutely. And there's still not a lot. But if I use my decade of experience in Scotland, it's 10 years now and we've finally got two events happening with Service Design Network. And that's great. You know, they finally said we need to start doing some stuff in Scotland, but it's taken us 10 years. You've got a few other events happening with uh, great organisations in the public sector like Registers of Scotland running user research events. But this is only happening now. So... This has been a very long game of building a movement of people. And I probably reflect on an event called One Team Gov, which started with a group of six people on a mission to try and bring, you know, policy and delivery and everything in the middle, like design and research together to improve services and how government works for people, you know, inside and outside. Started with probably like one conversation, then four people, then six and 12 ran one event last year, ran a host of like small taster events uh, around the UK. And then yesterday had 700 people from across the world wow. come together. And, you know, they're, they're funded in a, in a small sense through government, but it's, they're still, they started really small and their energy just kept running events, even in the face of people going, I'm not really sure what this is about. You know, what are these people running this weird unconference yeah. thing? Um, but it's, it's persistence. It's persistence and it's capturing the spirit of people. And so... Some things happen really fast. That's a year journey. Scotland, like 10 years, you know, Ireland. What I'm excited about now is the fact that, you know, I've been having conversations here with a bunch of different people who are 
kind of doing this kind of work inside organizations, but individually. And so I think that group of people that I know, there's an awesome opportunity for them to start doing small events, but you've just got to keep it in the public consciousness and it will grow. And it's, yeah. it's really a patience and a long game, I think. Absolutely. It's, it's almost like we were talking about with this podcast, which, you know, the frequency of, of releasing is, is really important to make sure you're staying in the consciousness of, of the people who are listening. That's you guys at home, by the way. <laughs> um, so, Sarah, thank you so much for being here. And um, we're coming towards the end of the, the episode. And at the end of every episode, I ask the guests three questions. And the first question that I'm going to ask you is, what is the one thing that you like to be able to banish from the industry? I think the focus on the how and the methods and the obsession with it. Yeah. So I wrote, uh, I'm going to claim some fame now, but I wrote a, a blog post called The What? not the how of service design. Yeah, I have it and it, on Medium. It did a little bit of, uh, went a little bit viral, which was quite nice. Got lots of really good feedback on it. And I think I always get quite scared to blog and put my opinion out there um, so concisely. But I got a lot of good feedback with people saying, thank goodness you said that. Yeah. Because I've been thinking the same for a long time. We need to stop it. I'm interviewing a lot of designers who've been trained in service design, probably kind of start middle of career and I'll ask them a question, which is, show me something you made. So portfolio comes out. And before I know it, I'm being told about a synthesis workshop that they ran and there's a picture of lots of post-its. And what I want to know is, what's the thing that you designed? What did you actually help design? Maybe not just you, a team of people, because design's a collective, you know, team sport. But yeah. what is it that you designed? And what I'm getting is a list of methods. And then an excuse that actually, you know, they did some strategy and then it got Did, left yeah got left behind we need to stop that we you know if we are talking about designers within the service design industry yeah. we need to design some stuff we need to deliver stuff that mm -hmm. you know makes an outcome yeah so yeah. this this obsession with methods has to stop and I think we need to educate our clients actually on what design is actually about yeah so that's that, not okay no yeah okay that's an excellent response um, so what is the one professional skill that you wish you were better at saying no saying no prioritization as a designer running a business, I'm interested in absolutely everything. Um, mm. It's a the downside to, to having been trained in this, which is to get angry at everything around you um, <laughs> and want to fix it. Um, so I wish I could prioritise a little bit more and say no to things. What are you doing to enable that change? Saying no. Saying no <laughs> I should have said no to this. <laughs> yeah, that's not nice. I know, I'm sorry. Uh, I'm joking. She, yeah, she's joking. Yeah, okay. <laughs> And the last question, all right. So what advice would you give to design talent for the future? So I get asked this actually by a lot of people looking to develop their talent, looking to get into service design specifically. And they say, I've seen this course. What do you think of it? Should I go do it? And it's either asking me because I've done it or... You're I've, giving it. I've been yeah, I'm giving it or I've evaluated it. Um, and I say, don't go and do the course. Go and work in an organisation and learn the material of how that organization works. So when I say that, what I mean is that, you know, as a product designer, my material was wood and metal and glue and paper. You know, that was the materials I learned to make stuff with. If you want to go work in a, you know, service design context, go and learn the material of organizations. So mm, the fabric. Fabric of it, yeah. Like politics, relationships, data. And go and make something better there because, you know, if you come to me, again, I always come back to the context of if I'm interviewing someone, if you can just show me something you've made happen in, in an organization, you're gold dust yeah. because you've learned how to do that and design it. So go and do that. Learn and learn how to get prototypes made early, like sort of lean design approaches. Don't 
uh, go down the rabbit hole. Yeah, of, of the process and be you know purist about it. Just learn how to make prototypes happen, get them out in front of people, and do it in a live environment. So go and find an organisation that needs help, maybe a charity, offer to do even some volunteering, and learn the craft of making stuff happen with organisations. Excellent. Sarah, thank you so much for being on the podcast. (laughs) Thank you. So there you have it. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you'd like to be part of the conversation or community, hop on over to thisishcd.com, where you can request to join the Slack channel and help shape future episodes and connect with other designers around the world. Thanks for listening and see you next time.